You may recall uh, that the book of 2 Samuel uh, largely deals with the life of King David, and you may recall that one of the most difficult moments in David's life was when his son Absalom turned against him and raised up an army against him and sought to overthrow his father and to grab the throne for himself. And recalling that, you may also recall that on account of Absalom's rebellion, David and his supporters uh, were forced to flee the capital city and to find a hiding place in the wilderness. And if you've read this story uh, a few times, you may even remember that on David's way out of town, he was greeted by a sort of rabble-rouser who stood on a hillside and threw rocks and insults at David and his party as they exited the city barefoot and weeping. It's easy to remember uh, the discouragement, the embarrassment, and the distress that David faced in those difficult days. In fact, it's usually easiest for us to remember the difficult times, it seems. But we may not remember uh, the great refreshment and help that God also provided David after he crossed over the Jordan River into the wilderness. We may not remember in that story a particular old man who came out to meet David, not with stones and curses, but with cartloads full of supplies to keep David and his companions alive during their exile across the Jordan. But we're going to remember that old man tonight, an 80-year-old hero named Barzillai. And we're going to read about him now, beginning in verse 27 here in 2 Samuel 17. So read 2 Samuel 17, 27 through 29 with me. Now, when David had come to Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the sons of Ammon, Makir the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grains, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curd, sheep, and cheese of the herd, of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now, David and his men lived on that generosity and were sustained in the wilderness and were eventually able, in chapter 18, if you were to read it, to beat back Absalom's attacking forces, to quash the rebellion, and to begin making their way back home across the Jordan to Jerusalem. And when they approached the Jordan River, now the second time to cross back over it on their way home as victors, Barzillai was there again, this time not with supplies, but with much needed encouragement and companionship for his friend and his king, David. And we want to read about that as well, turning over to chapter 19 and verses 31 through 39. So turn to chapter 19 and we'll finish reading the story of Barzillai beginning there in verse 31. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on to the Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. Now Barzillai was very old, being 80 years old, and he had sustained the king while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very great man. The king said to Barzillai, you cross over with me, and I will sustain you in Jerusalem with me. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I yet to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? Or can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Or can I hear any more the voice of singing men and women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king compensate me with this reward? 
Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. However, here's your servant Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what is good in your sight. The king answered, Kimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him what is good in your sight. And whatever you require of me, I will do for you. All the people crossed over the Jordan and the king crossed too. The king then kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his place. That's the picture of Barzillai, the Gileadite in scripture. These are the only verses that speak of him. And as we've done with the other minor characters in the last few sermons, I'm going tonight to give you a handful of lessons from the example of this man. In other words, there are going to be a handful of main points to the sermon tonight. But before I give you the main points, let me just briefly point out a couple of items that we've touched on in more detail with some of these previous minor characters, but I think that bear repeating from the example of Barzillai this evening. So just a couple of things quickly before we get to the main things. Very quickly, notice Barzillai's compassion. It's compassion. We talked about compassion at length as we watched Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, pad the ropes and pull Jeremiah out of that muddy cistern a week ago. And we see this same kind of compassion in this old man Barzillai tonight, don't we? We see him caring for his king and caring for his people. He saw his king weeping. He saw his king coming out of the capital city barefooted. barefooted. He saw his king with his confidence shattered. And he saw the very obvious physical needs that David and his 600-plus men would have wandering from town to town in the wilderness on the backside of the Jordan. And he felt compassion toward them. He was moved the way some of us maybe are moved when we see a little sparrow with a broken wing flitting around helplessly on the sidewalk in front of our home. Something happens to our hearts when we see that. That's what Barzillai was like with David, and he's an example to us, isn't he? There are people with broken wings flitting around us all the time, aren't there? There are people who, at least figuratively, are going about barefoot and weeping all the time all around us. And what a portrait of and what an extension of the compassion and the love of Christ, we can be if we, like this Barzillai, will meet those struggling souls in the wilderness and nurse them back to health. So that's one thing. Just quickly, his, his compassion should be imitated. But in addition to his compassion, we should also learn from Barzillai the value of companionship. And we've seen this already as well in the lives of Priscilla and Aquila on Sunday morning. How important it can be for a man of God to have partners to simply have someone with whom he may walk side by side in the work of God so that he's not going at it alone. And here we see this again today. What a blessing it must have been as David now was making his way back to the capital city, bruised but not beaten. What a blessing to have such a dignified man, such a great man as he's called, come meet him, chapter 19, verse 31, and escort him over the Jordan. David could get over the Jordan River physically without the help of an 80-year-old man, right? He came to escort him because he knew that David needed encouragement. He just needed a companion. He needed a wise, sturdy character to say, I'm with you. And that's sometimes exactly what we need, isn't it? Just someone to be with us, someone to share the struggle with, someone who will simply be on our side. That's where David was. He didn't any longer need Barzillai's cheeses or lentils or bedsheets. But now what he needed was simply his companionship. He needed to know that someone sturdy and trustworthy and wise was with him. 
And may God give each of us the grace both to be and to have such friends. So those are just two brief reminders. Things we've seen before and things that we see again tonight in this 80-year-old man called Bartzillai. He is another wonderful reminder of Christian compassion and of Christian companionship. But now I want to give you four fresh lessons, four main lessons from the example of this man. The first is simply to remind you of the purpose of wealth. The purpose of wealth. I'm sure it was obvious to you as we read that this man, Bartzillai, was quite rich. We're told, first of all, in chapter 17, that he and two other men by themselves, just three of them, provided bedding, food, animals, cookware, and so on for David and all of his men. And when we remember that David's David's companions numbered at least 600 men, chapter 16, verse 18, we realize that what these three men did was no small feat. Now, I often joke that when she finds a sale, Toby sometimes can buy enough beans or carrots or salad dressing to feed an army. But Bartzillai and Shobi and Machir actually did that, didn't they? They went out and they gathered together enough beans and lentils and flour and sheep and honey and cheese and so on to literally feed this army of 600 men. And so these must have been men of considerable financial means. In fact, we're told in chapter 19, verse 32, that Bartzillai was, quote, a very great man, a man of no small importance, a man obviously of no small character, but a man of no small checkbook as well. So here is a wealthy man without doubt, but the question is, what was the purpose of his wealth? Why had God given him this kind of cash flow? Was it so that he could curry favor with the king? Well, no, we read there in chapter 19, didn't we, that this man actually had no interest in becoming part of King David's court or in being repaid from King David's coffers. So why did God allow him to be so wealthy? Was it so that he could make a name for himself in Israel? Again, the answer is no. He seems to have chosen to, to stay in his little small hometown, Rogalim, which is never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. He didn't go to the great places. He just stayed where he was. And so if Bartzillai didn't possess wealth in order to become politically or personally powerful or self-satisfied, then the question is, why did God allow him all that cash? And the answer is very simply, is it? Very simple in this passage, isn't it? So that he could give it away. God gave him all these things so that he could give them away. That was the purpose of his wealth. Now, you can read all up and down the Bible about money and possessions, and you'll find the following statements, I think, to be true. Number one, it's not a bad thing to possess wealth. In fact, if wealth comes to you as a blessing from God to you as an honest, hardworking man or woman, wealth can be a positively good thing. And not only is there nothing wrong with having money in the bank, but when you read the Bible, you discover that there's also nothing wrong with having some of the nice things that money can buy. God allows and sometimes even gives people really nice stuff. For instance, how different would the story of Jesus be if there had not been some person in Jerusalem who owned a house sizable enough to have a large upper room where Jesus and his disciples might enjoy their last supper together? Or how different might the story of Jesus be if there hadn't been a certain woman who possessed a very expensive bottle of perfume that she later was able to pour on Jesus' feet? You see my point? There are 
all sorts of godly people in the Bible who had great wealth and who even had some of the accoutrements that go along with great wealth. And Barzillai was among those people. Even though he lived in a small town, we shouldn't probably picture him as living out in a shack somewhere, given that he was a very great man. We should probably picture him living on a sprawling ranch, surrounded by the beauty and the order that befit a man of greatness and a man of means. And the Bible doesn't condemn him for that. But what the Bible does do in the cases of Barzillai and the woman with the expensive perfume and the family that owned that large house in Jerusalem with the upper room, what the Bible does do is to show how these people, all three of them, were willing to either lend or to give away their wealth and their possessions to people in need and especially to God's people in need. God gives us wealth so that we might use it on behalf of others and so that we might use it for the sake of his kingdom. That's the purpose of wealth, and we are reminded of that again with this man, Barzillai. And if that's the purpose of wealth, then surely each of us should learn to think of our money and our homes and our cars and our land and our perfume and whatever it may be in exactly this way. Let's not condemn ourselves for that which God has given us as a blessing, but let's not simply use his blessings on ourselves. Let's not become addicted to them. Rather, let's let all of these things be held with very loose fingers and be always willing to give them away or allow them to be used by people who need them perhaps far more than we do. Think about how much money it must have cost Barzillai to sustain David and his 600 men for all those days. Beds, cookware, food, sheep, food for the sheep, and so on. Now, Alan and Heather have a registry at Target right now. If you add all that stuff together just for one family, right? That's why we're helping them. That's why we're blessing them. Because even for one family, it's significant. But what about for 600 men? All of those things. And yet, Bartzali and his two friends were willing to part with that money and with those resources for David's sake and for the sake of David's kingdom and mostly for the sake of David's God. And we should note that last point well. In doing David good, Barzillai was doing the entire kingdom good. In keeping David alive, Barzillai was keeping the whole kingdom alive, right? And the kingdom, of course, was not just David's kingdom, it was God's kingdom. And so really what Barzillai was doing was using his wealth not just for David and not just for these 600 men, but for the welfare of all of God's people, for the welfare of the entirety of God's kingdom, and therefore to be a blessing to God who owns the kingdom, to God who is the king of King David. And if that's what he was doing, using his wealth for the welfare of God's kingdom, shouldn't we who serve in a far greater kingdom than David ruled over, shouldn't we be willing to do the same with our wealth? Surely we should. So I'd encourage you just to always have your eyes peeled and your ears to the ground, asking God to show you how you might fulfill the purpose for which he has given you all that he's given you. Asking God to show you how you might use your wealth to help those in need and for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first lesson to be gleaned from Bartzali's story, the purpose of wealth, namely that it be given away to the glory of God. And the second is this, the beauty of generosity. The beauty of generosity. Now, it may sound like I'm just repeating the previous point. 
and I've probably been known to do that before, but I'm not doing that exactly this time. We're going to look again at Bartali's open-handedness toward David, yes, but we're going to consider it now from a couple of angles that we didn't under the last heading. First, I just want to point out that Bartali's generosity would have been needed and would have been noteworthy whether he was a wealthy man or not. Isn't that true? David needed lentils and cheese and beds and curds, not because there happened to be a rich guy nearby who could provide all those things, but simply because David needed lentils and cheese and beds and curds, right? And so whether Bartoli had a large bank account or not is in some ways irrelevant. There were needs that had to be met, and God's people in such instances surely will want to spring into action whether their pocketbooks are great or whether they're small. And that's why we need a separate point on generosity. That's why we need to not simply talk about the purpose of wealth because generosity, point two, is good and God-honoring and necessary even if we don't possess wealth, point one. In other words, I don't just want to give that first point and then leave us feeling like we're off the hook if we're not quite in the same income tax bracket as Bartzali was. That would be a mistake, wouldn't it? It would be a mistake if someone read this story and said to him or herself, what a marvelous story. Praise God for Bartzali. And boy, if I were set up like he was, there's no telling how generous I would be. That's a mistake. That's not what we should come away with, is it? Wealth is part of this story, but it's not the main part. The main thing was that Bartzali was generous, whether he was wealthy or not. And so whether you own a sprawling ranch out in the beautiful countryside or whether you like the widow in Luke 21 just have two copper coins the Bible urges upon you generosity and there's a second thing that we omitted under that previous heading and that was simply to sit back and admire the beauty of generosity we talked about his wealth and the needs that David had and and how they should be met, and how he was willing to do so, and so on. And it's necessary to talk about all those nuts and bolts kinds of things. But it's one thing to talk about all the nuts and bolts, and it's another thing to actually just stand back and admire the person who's willing to do this. Because one of the ways that we are wooed to this kind of generosity and kindness is when we see the beauty of it in other people. One of the ways that we're wooed towards generosity is by being dazzled by other people who show it. And that's true not just of generosity, but of any kindness. For instance, I'm always dazzled when I go to children's hospital and see some dad wheeling his handicapped son down the hall and leaning over to whisper into his ears and looking down at him while they wait for the elevator and smiling in his face and rubbing his hair and just so glad to be with his son and serving his little boy. I'm always amazed by that. When I see that kind of love, I'm always moved to love my children more, even though loving them costs me much less than it costs that man at the hospital. And the same kind of thing happens to me when I read the story of the generosity of Bartzali. This is the very first time I've ever preached or taught on this man, but I've read his story many times over as I've worked my way through the Bible, reading devotionally. And every time I read it, I find myself warmed. Every time I come to 2 Samuel 17, I find my heart moved. It's just so beautiful to watch this old man be there out in the wilderness for his friends. Picture this caravan of supplies now winding its way through the wilderness to David. 
So many things coming over the hillsides. David must have seen and heard all the commotion from some distance away. Perhaps he heard it before he ever saw it. Because there were probably donkeys overloaded with all manner of pots and sacks and crates and so on. All over the place. And there were probably farm wagons of all shapes and sizes creaking along the road with their rusty axles and being pulled by all sorts of different beasts. Sheep that he brought must have been running here and there, bleeding and making a general ruckus like sheep do. Servants were scurrying to and fro like ants, surely, trying to keep it all together. And as David watched this circus train of generosity coming over the horizon and kicking up a royal dust storm along the way, lo and behold, at the head of the procession is this little 80-year-old man leaning on his cane, sheltering his clouded eyes from the sun and on a mission to get to these men in need before it's too late. And that's a powerful scene, isn't it? When I'm 80 and while I'm still 34, I want to be like this man. I want to be there for someone in need like that. You see, generosity, when we just observe it, is a beautiful thing. Generosity, when we just stop thinking about the dollar amounts and the needs and everything else, but just watch someone do it, it's beautiful. Compassion is beautiful, and it woos us to join in, doesn't it? And so I hope the story of Bartzli woos you to join in with this great-grandfather of a man and to spend and be spent in the service of God and other people. Now, thirdly, picturing Bartzli with his arthritic knees and his cane in his hand coming down the road to meet David brings us to another heading, namely the possibilities of old age. The possibilities of old age. It's well worth noting, I think, that Bartzali was 80 years old and still serving the Lord. Now, I know we sometimes tell ourselves that Bible years are different than normal years, right? Like dog years are different than human years, supposedly. We, we read the Bible and we say, well, uh, of course, if someone was 80 in the Bible, that's kind of like being 30 in our time. Uh, and that can be true in places. For instance, Moses' life work never really even began until he was 80 years old, and then he lived and served God for another 40 years after that, right? Or Caleb in the book of Joshua, when he was 85 years old, could say that he was as strong still as when he was 40. Now, we may conclude that Caleb really was that strong, or we may wonder whether he was like a lot of old men whose imagination is stronger than their muscles. But the fact is true that a lot of people in the Bible lived a lot longer than we live and were a lot stronger than we are far beyond the years which most of us will remain alive. However, I want you to see that that was emphatically not the case with this man Bartzali. He wasn't like Moses and Caleb in this regard at all. For instance, the narrator in chapter 19, verse 32, tells us that he was very old. So his 80 years were really like we would think of 80 years. He was very old. And you'll notice that Bartzali himself did not speak at all with the confidence and testosterone that Caleb spoke with. Far from it. Caleb, remember, claimed that in his 80s he was as strong as ever. And maybe he was, but Bartzali, when he was in his 80s, spoke like this in chapter 19, verse 35. I'm now 80 years old, 
Can I distinguish between good and bad? Or can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Or can I hear the voice of singing men and women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord the King? Now that sounds more like what older people usually talk like, doesn't it? I feel like such a burden to everyone. I know my mind is going. I can't taste anything anymore. And if I don't have my hearing aid in, I really have a hard time following along with the songs at church. Well, that was Bart's life. And yet, even at that age and with all those infirmities, he was still hard at work for the Lord, traipsing over the hillsides, bringing sheep and all these carts full of things to his friend. And what that tells us is very simply that God will surely have work for us to do, too, when we are old. Now, some of you are already there. In fact, even now, some of you are feeling sympathy pains as you think of Barzillai traveling all that way, either on foot or on horseback, to meet David in the wilderness. But those of us who aren't there yet, yet, Lord willing, someday we will be, and before we know it. And when we are, when we are old, or if we are old already, there will be great encouragement if we will turn to the pages of Second Samuel chapter 17 and 19. Because we will learn here that old age doesn't have to be a time of waning usefulness in the Lord's service. In all the Bible, you should notice that Bartoli's name is only recorded in these two chapters. And therefore, we can probably safely surmise that his greatest service to the Lord occurred right here in these two chapters. The greatest work that he ever did in his life, in other words, took place when he was 80 years old with his hearing all but gone and his taste buds as good as dead and his mind so confused that he felt, verse 35, like he was no longer able to distinguish between good and bad. And what that tells me is that old age is a land of great opportunity. If Bartzali's greatest moment came at 80, then when will your, your greatest moment be? You never know. You may not be too old yet to have had your highest point of service to the Lord. If Bartoli could be so useful when he actually felt, verse 35, like he was a burden, then you and I may be useful when we're old as well. Now, I realize, and we've said this before, that when you're 80, you cannot do any longer what you did when you were 30. And that was true of Bartoli, no doubt. Had he been 30... Instead of being 80, he'd probably have been out in the fields with David's soldiers fighting rather than stocking the canteen back at the base. And that will be true of all of us as we get older. The day will come when we will no longer be able to serve God as we once did. But remember this as well. Had Bartoli been 30 instead of 80, there's probably no way he'd have accumulated the wealth to feed 600 men. Did you ever think of that? It's easy to go, well, if he'd been 30, he'd have been out, able to be out fighting. But if he'd been 30, he wouldn't have had the money to feed these men, and there would have been no fighting to be done. I hope you see the significance of that. Yes, 80-year-olds will not be able to do in the service of the Lord what 30-year-olds can do. Strength and mental agility and endurance and so many other things are available to 30-year-olds in measures that old men can only remember fondly. But it's also true that free time and accumulated wealth and accumulated wisdom are often available to older men in ways that young men can only dream about wistfully. 
And so let us not feel useless because we can't do what others can do or what we once did, but let us, as we grow old, see that with our age comes new opportunities to serve God, perhaps in ways we've never done before, and perhaps in ways that no one else in the church will have the free time or the financial flexibility to do. That was Barzillai. So we've seen in him the purpose of wealth, the beauty of generosity, the possibilities of old age, and now finally, let's learn from him the glory of humility. The glory of humility. As you pay attention to Barzillai's response here in chapter 19 when David offered to bring him to Jerusalem and make him a member of the royal court and support him from the king's coffers and honor him in all these different ways, do you notice his response? He gave three reasons why he was declining David's invitation. Declined it politely, but he gave him three reasons why he wouldn't come. First of all, verse 35, because he was old and he felt like he might be a burden to the king. Second of all, verse 37, because like a lot of other older people, he was not really fond of the idea of leaving home after all those years living in the same place. I think we've all heard that line of thinking before, and I suspect we will, many of us sympathize with Barzillai when we're 80 and someone is trying to coax us to leave home. But there was another far more important why Barzillai, reason why Barzillai didn't go with the king to receive a hero's welcome in Jerusalem, namely because he didn't see himself as much of a hero. That's what we discover when we read verse 36. What does he say? I don't want to go all the way to Jerusalem. I don't need to move. I don't need you to feed me. I don't need you to make me one of your honored members of your court. Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king compensate me with this reward? In other words, I just want to cross over the Jordan with you, and then I'll go back home. You don't have to do all these other things. Why should the king compensate me? Now, I hope that you heard two notes of humility there in his words in verse 36. First, even though he had sustained the king for all that time, even though this man had given King David perhaps more than anyone else ever gave King David, Barzillai called himself the king's servant. And he didn't just do it in verse 36. It's again and again in this passage. Your servant, your servant, your servant. He doesn't call himself your counselor. He doesn't call himself your advisor. He doesn't call himself your father figure. He doesn't call himself your benefactor he was all of those things, but he thought of himself in regard to David as, quote, your servant. And that's why he said, secondly, why should the king compensate me with this reward? Now, I have added the emphasis on the word me, myself, in that question that Barzillai asked. But I think it's the right emphasis. I think that that's exactly how Barzillai must have said it. Why should the king compensate me? Me? Why would he have said it that way? Well, because for all he had done for David, Barzillai knew that David was still the king. David, not Barzillai, was God's anointed. David, not Barzillai, was the ruler of the nation. David, not Barzillai, was the man through whose family the Messiah would come. And Barzillai understood these things. He was not the king. He was the servant. And along with that, Surely he also understood that if he had not had such a good and wise and mighty king all those years, there's a very good chance that his own personal prosperity with which he'd helped the king would have actually gone up in smoke. If he hadn't had David as his king, he might not have been the great man that he was. 
In other words, had David not been so mighty as a military leader, the kingdom would have constantly been threatened and pressured from the outside. And Barzillai's land out on the frontier would have perhaps been among the first places overrun by the marauding Canaanites that lived round about. And had David not been so wise in his government, Barzillai's land and wealth may have been eaten up with unfair taxes and garnishments, as later Israelites experienced under lesser kings. And had David not been so good, had he not been a man after God's own heart, God may not have continued to bless the land and the crops and the people of Israel the way he blessed them. And Barzillai must have understood these things. Barzillai recognized, in other words, that when he gave sheep and honey and beds and basins to the king, he was really giving back to the king what the king in his wisdom and in his goodness and in his might had given to him. He was who he was because of his king. And so he said, why should the king compensate me? In other words, I'm the one that owes you. It's not that you owe me. And this is the attitude that we ought to have with our king too, isn't it? Yes, many of us give and give and give to the king's work, just like Barzillai. Those of you who tithe your salary will give over the course of your lifetime tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Lord. But at the end of the day, you probably don't expect to receive a gold star or to see your name posted on a wall somewhere among the list of platinum donors. Why not? Well, hopefully because you realize that the only reason why you were able, ever able to give to the king is because the king was so wise and good and mighty that in his benevolence and his favor, you were allowed to have every dime you ever possessed. Because you realized how poor and how helpless you would be without God's blessing and generosity. So when you give to the Lord, I think most of you know that you're only giving back what the king in his wisdom and in his goodness and in his might has already given to you. And so it only makes sense when he blesses you for it to say, why should the king compensate me? And even more humility is bred into us when we consider what God has given to us in the gospel. Think of Jesus in the gospel in the terms we've been using to describe the generosity in these chapters tonight. Has not God, in giving us his son, reached into the deepest pockets of his wealth in order to sustain us? I mean, Bartoli reached deep, but nothing like this. Bartoli gave David a whole flock of sheep in order to sustain him. But in order to sustain us, God gave the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, his son. God reached far deeper into his pockets. God is far more generous to us in the gospel than David or Barzillai ever thought about being toward one another. Indeed, everything we have, we owe to God's generosity to us in the gospel, don't we? Without it, we'd be good as dead. But with it, we have forgiveness. With it, we have the hope of heaven. And with God's gospel generosity, we have new life in Christ here on this earth. Some of us, perhaps, to the age of 80 and beyond. And we, therefore, have the high privilege with that new life, like Barzillai, of serving our king all the way to the end of our days. And it's all because of what he's done for us. It's all because of Jesus, who bought us with his blood and who made us alive by his resurrection from the dead and whose spirit dwells in our hearts and makes us willing and able to be generous back toward our God and also toward our fellow man. And so...
when we are generous. And when we open the Bible and read about the joys that God is laying up for our reward, isn't it our natural response to be a little bit embarrassed by what we read? When the king comes to us and says, why don't you let me bless you? Why don't you let me repay you for all that you've done for me? Isn't it our natural response to say with Bartoli, why should the king ever think of being so good to me? What have I given you, Lord, that you hadn't first already given to me? What have I done for you, Jesus, in comparison with all that you've done for me? Why should the king compensate me with this reward? That's the glory of humility. And that's the story of Bartoli.